I may drive over here to see the steeple come off. <laughs> we did that at Village. I had an auditorium very much like this, maybe a little bit bigger than this in San Antonio, and our steeple was dead center, and it liked to cause roof leaks. I've spent a fortune on roofs of worship centers, and we took ours off and painted it and put it back up there and fixed the roof. And uh, we all staff stood outside and took pictures. In fact, I probably could find the picture if you want to see what it looks like. No, don't ask me. Listen, I, just a quick word. I just want to, I'll say thank you next week, but just thank you for everything. I've enjoyed my almost 15 months being here at uh, Ridgecrest, and uh, it's been a blast for me. Uh, somebody asked me a minute ago, what's my future hold? I don't know. I'm retired. I am going for season number three on the football field. I went, I'm, my, my wife's going to the gym with me. That's a miracle. She has never gone to the gym ever. People always ask Jan, how do you stay so little? She says, I breathe. That is the extent of her exercising always. But she's going to the gym, and so I'm trying to get strong enough so when a kid runs me over this year, I don't end up at the doctor afterwards. So we'll see how that unfolds. But anyway, I want to thank you. You know, what's made the year good is you, you guys got a great staff. You better tell them how much you appreciate all that they've done in the last 15 months. They have done an amazing job. I, you know, my only advice early was just keep doing what you do. Keep everything running like you're running. Keep having everything you've always had. And just let's go forward and see where it takes us. <clears throat> and I've enjoyed our worship services. Uh, he's stepped out, I guess. But Caleb has done a, an amazing job. You have a great worship teams up here. And I get to hear a lot of that. And, and then pray for, you know, nobody has ever told me the name of your pastor, so I hope I get it right. Nick Dorsey, am I correct? Okay. I wasn't certain about that. I had to do some research to find out who he is and stuff. But today will not be easy. You know, I pastored three churches, and my last Sunday at each one of them was tough because I love the people. I love where we're at. And but God opened doors, and so we, we moved. And, and, but I, I know how difficult it was. And when I walked away two years ago after 30 years at Village, that's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. So even though you'll be excited about coming here to a great church, uh, it's going to be a tough Sunday. And he, it'll be a very emotional, quite emotional. Lot, lot, no one will ever know what he's thinking or going through. But you lift him up. And then I guess the transition this week to get here, I'm understanding he'll be here Sunday, so I get to meet him Sunday, and uh, we'll have a good time together. All right, take your Bibles. Turn to Philippians. We're in the third chapter today. We'll be doing verses 7 through 14. Now, last year, at the first of the year, we started Ephesians, did six months. And then when we got through with Ephesians, we decided to go into 2 Timothy to kind of continue the theme from Ephesians. And I had four months. And so now we're going to do Philippians, and I got two weeks. So we'll see how fast we can get through Philippians uh, in these two weeks. This week, I'm going to do this section, verse chapter 3, verse 10, will be my focus. And next week, chapter 4, verse 13, will be my focus. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what I've tried to do in the last four weeks is to prepare you guys for whatever may lie ahead for all of us in 2024. I really still think it's going to be a, a crazy world which we're living in, and there's no telling how this is going to unfold or what's going to happen. And you and I are called to be salt and light always, to stand firm in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is one of the passages. Last week I showed Noah stood firm in the midst of the days of Noah, 
And I made a point last week, we might be in the days of Noah, we might not, but no matter what, may we be like Noah. May we have faith, may we walk in righteousness, may our lives be blameless, and may we walk with God every day. But I want to come now to what makes it happen for Paul. He did not have an easy life. I don't know if Paul would have even understood the word burnout. That's, you know, they have that for pastors now. We can go to conferences and teach us how to handle burnout. I, I've never understood the burnout thing because after 45 years, I love this. This has been fun for me. Has it been tough? Yes, it's been tough. Have been hard times? Yes, they've been hard times. But I have loved this my entire life. Paul had a passion, and the passage we're going to look at always caught my attention. I said this a couple weeks ago. He's probably in his early 60s when he writes this. He's been doing this a long time. He has been to the third heavens. He has seen miracles take place that would be astounding to all of you. I could maybe say one or two miracles that I've seen happen in my 45 years. He would have had handfuls of miracles that he saw God do in the most dramatic of ways. But he had been in prisons. He had been in dangers. He's been beaten times without numbers. You know, I made national news for defending a soldier in 2013 and got attacked by the press because of my conservative values during that time frame. And so because I was, quote, with Sergeant Monk, one of the persecuted, I got to do Fox and Friends. For one time, somebody's muddying my name, and I'm defending myself on Fox and Friends with some guy named Tucker Carlson. You may have heard of him. He interviewed me, and Shannon Bream later on. I have never considered that that tough of a situation. Paul got beat up times without numbers. He got the cat of nine tails one time. He got beaten with rods, which is like to me getting beat with a baseball bat. Somebody just take a bat and swing at you as hard as they can over and over and over. He went through that, and he got the cat of nine tails five times. And if what we've been taught is correct, that that's 39 lashes because 40 would kill you, they take you to the edge of death and then bring you out. That is 195 times that, that that whip hit his back. If Paul was to take his shirt off in our church today, if we could see that, we would all probably pull back at the horror of what his back would have looked like, having been destroyed by that whip. And so you get prisons, you got people who don't like him. Look, listen to what happens. This will be an overview of Philippians. He's going to say, I'm in the Roman prison. That's not going to be great, although he might be in a rented quarter, according to Acts 28. But he had people trying to destroy his name because he's in prison. They're taking advantage of him not being around. They want the position and the power. And Paul says, you know what? It's okay. As long as they preach Christ, I'm not going to fight over their motives. Their motives aren't right, but that's okay. But for a lot of times, that would really eat at our hearts and our minds that somebody would bring that kind of motive uh, to what's going on in our lives. He faced the real possibility of dying this time. He has been there before, but now he is probably pushing close to it right now. But he's not certain. He thinks God might let him live on a little bit, but he could face the possibility, and you know the passage, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I don't know which direction I want to go. To be with you would be much better, but to be with him, you can't beat that at all. But he's facing that. It's real. 
I mean, that's real. You know, I woke up this morning and I was reminded as I got up this morning, I'm the age of my mother when she was at my house on October the 5th in 205. She was going full blast. Life was good for her. She was 70 years of age. It was good. On October the 6th, when she walked into my living room at 5 o'clock in the morning and I was sitting there studying for Sunday, I knew she was something wrong. She was dying. And she passed away shortly thereafter. From total health to dying. I'm at that day. And I take after my mom. My brothers give me a hard time that I'm taking after mom. I don't have diabetes. They all have diabetes and on insulin, and I don't have it. They don't think it's fair. I said, you want fair? Mom's been gone for 17, 18, now 19 years. Dad just passed away. He made it to 90. I think y'all the ones. It's not fair. It's hard to believe life could come to a finish because I can't fathom mom passing away feeling like I feel today and having the energy that I have today, and she was the same way. You and I have no idea how this death and dying thing is going to work, but when those moments do come, those are real. Those are not easy things to always face. God gives us grace for dying days, but Paul's going through that. He is facing that from prison, and he is also facing a shortage of workers. Welcome to the ministry, Paul. Never enough people to do the work. Labors are few, Jesus would say. He's going to say this, you know what? I can only find one man who really cares about you. His name's Timothy. Others don't really care about you. I know I can send him because he's concerned about who you are. He's about maybe to lose a friend named Epaphroditus who was very sick and almost died. But he's now at the point as he writes the letter, he's going, Epaphroditus is going to be okay. And I know you're praying for him and I've been praying for him, but God spared us the loss of Epaphroditus. He's going to stay around a little bit. He, in the chapter 3, is going to say that there are dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. Because in the church, there are always those who are troublemakers, and there are always those who are false, and there are always those who want to lead and misguide everyone around. It's always going to be there. Now, same in Paul's day. It's that way all the way through. And so he's facing that. And he also says, I face the enemies of the cross, and there are many of them. And that's in chapter 3, verse 19. Their God is their appetite, their bellies. And he's facing all of that. And he's even got strife in this particular church. He's got two women probably out to kill each other. And he's saying, come down, ladies. Well, let's get together. We're going to be okay. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little there, but that's what he's telling them. Calm down. It's going to be all right. And then nobody's supporting him financially. Only Philippi, one of the poorest churches, is doing that. Now, you think for a moment as we get into this. If you're Paul, you're in prison, you're considered a criminal, you've been beaten so many times it's not even funny, you can't count on some people who will take advantage of your situation, try to make you look bad so that they can look good and get your position or your power. You don't have that many friends in the ministry who can step up and do it. Some of your friends are sick and may not make it. And you're facing all of this opposition and you've got the financial worries of trying to do ministry and everything else and survive through all of that. And there's a real possibility you might not live but a few more days. You think you had a rough week. This is Paul's life. That's why I'm so intrigued by our passage today. And so let's look, because I know a lot of preachers who quit for less than that. But a lot of people start with me over the years have disappeared and no longer to be found over smaller situations than this because they could not handle the pressure nor the situation. I've known many in churches who would give up and never serve again because of even one thing somebody said against them would happen. But Paul, 
Nothing stops him. You can't stop this man and his commitment to Christ. You cannot stop him in what he believes. You cannot stop him from living life. And he does it fully all the way to the end. And that's why when he gets to the end, he can look at Timothy in his letter, not literally look at him, but write to him and say this, I fought a good fight. I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. I finished the course. Now waiting for me is crown of glory which God will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but to all of us who love and look forward to his appearing. So if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read verses 7 through 14. You follow along in your Bibles. It says this, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And our focal this morning is verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, as I am being conformed to his death in order that when this is all said and done, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's not that I've attained it already, or it's not that I've become perfect, but I press on. So I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. We'll stop a moment. That's not in my sermon, but that little last part of that phrase is critical. God laid hold of you for a purpose in life. Now you grab back and hold on and you walk with him through what he created you for. Paul very clearly states, so that I can lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. Verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I reach forward to what lies ahead, and I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, speak to us today of what it is to know you, Speak to us what it is to stay faithful. Speak to us of what it is to endure. Speak to what it is that helps us to keep going so that we bring you honor and glory in all that we do and say. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's start with this, because the entire purpose of your life, guys, I'm speaking as a pastor now, the entire purpose of your life is to know Jesus according to our passage and to know him well. I will tell you this, Paul was a self-made man, and he was exceptionally successful in everything that he did in life. He was born in a privileged position. A lot of us don't know what it would be like to be born in a privileged position. When Steve Branson was born to Jerry and Wilma Branson in Jacksonville, Florida, my dad was in the Navy. He was the lowest rank you could get. He served two or three years during the Korean War. Uh, we about starved to death during those times. And so when he got out of the Navy and came back to Texas, I was nine months old, we moved into our first home, a 15-foot trailer at Lamar University. I lived in a 15... I can't even fathom what that must have been like for my mom and dad. And then we stepped up after that, and we went to government housing. I hope I never do that again. That was interesting. I still remember my brother got snake bit because we lived on a swampy area, and he was out playing, and a snake bit him, and he survived it, uh, even though I tried to keep him from surviving, but he did survive it. 
I don't know what privileged position is, but Paul had privileged position. Opens doors that a lot of us never get open. He was of the nation of Israel, he'll tell us in our passage in chapter 3. He was circumcised the eighth day. Those aren't big deals to us, but they opened the door for him because he was a tribe of Benjamin and he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Here's a man who was given amazing opportunities. And he has to be privileged because he has later one of the best teachers you could have in the entire world. One of the smartest men who ever lived educated Paul and helped him along the way. And he also had something else that stood him apart even from other Jews and that he was a Roman citizen. So here's a man who had amazing privileges that will give him opportunities in life that most of us would never have in life. He was also something else. Not only had the privilege, but he was deeply committed to his Jewish faith. He was Jewish by birth, Jewish by privilege, but also he was committed to it. He became a Pharisee. And he says in the letter to Galatia, he was advancing in Judaism far above any of his contemporaries. And I remember back when I was in seminary years ago, and Southwestern Seminary during the days I attended was Oh, literally it was wall-to-wall people walking through the hallways between class because it was so big during those days. And there were two or three guys who were so much smarter than us who, who were blowing past us in the studies and everything else, on to PhDs and everything else. So I kind of understand Paul, but they were motivated. They worked hard. They were, in the, they were in the library. They were in their study carols. They were researching. They were really working hard to get somewhere in life. Paul was that, and he became unbelievably committed to the Jewish faith, and he blew past everyone else. And when it came to law, he knew it, and he worked hard to keep it. He fully grasped and understand all that was going on. So he's a very committed man to his faith. And then he was self-motivated, and not only, as I've said, a hard worker, but the motivation took him to levels that very few would go. He said, when it came to zeal, he said, I was more zealous, extremely zealous, for my ancestral traditions than the rest of the guys. It says that in Galatians 1. But what it led him to is persecuting the church. And when he went after the church, he went after it with an anger and a hatred that would be very much what we see in the Middle East sometimes towards uh, some of the Jews and what they've been going through. It's intense. And he is out there, full, everything he's got, going full after it. And on top of that, you clearly couldn't find much wrong with him. He was blameless. See, here's a man who has every reason to be confident about life. Privileged position attain a tremendous level within the Pharisees and probably has already on his resume to move forward that one day he'll be a high priest, that he would be the high priest that people would look to. He is a man who lived the faith. He's a man who persecuted others who didn't buy into what he believed. He fully did that. But God, you can always throw but God into your thing sometimes. That's why I like when I'm in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We're being influenced by the world. We're being influenced by Satan. We're being influenced by the course the world is going. We're being influenced by the lust of our flesh and the lust of our mind. And by nature, we're now children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, great love which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. For by grace have you been saved. Something that God had a plan for him. And Paul's salvation is one of the great biblical miracles Splitting the Red Sea is a pretty stunning miracle. Peter getting to walk on the waters and a miracle that God that Christ allowed him to do. But the Apostle Paul's changed life is dynamic, dramatic, and unbelievable. To go from the most committed to ideology and faith that he had. 
to be the most committed to Christ that you've ever seen. Ananias was told by the Lord, go, Paul's a chosen instrument of mine. He will bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. This man who went from a very privileged position, serving in Judaism as a Pharisee with an unlimited future, suddenly will be the man who stands before the entire world to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. The man who tried to destroy it is the man who's going to be the one who literally speaks to the most powerful people in the world to tell them the great truths of Christ. So what Paul now faces is a dramatic course correction in his life. I mean, literally, he is going this way, and boom, hit a wall, and now he's going to be going this way. How long did it take him to turn around and eventually get ready to be able to do the job? 17 years. 17 years in preparation for what he's going to do. I can tell you this, you don't get to stand in the big spots to speak and to address people unless you've earned it along the way. Because you will not be able to handle it nor be able to address it. Paul had much he had to learn. Here's a brilliant man trained by one of the greatest educators ever. But God's doing a work in his heart and had to change him. And it took 17 years because there's not a believer once. If Paul had walked into Ridgecrest shortly after the road to Damascus, you would have been scared to death to see him walk in the building because you wouldn't have trusted him. This is the man who imprisoned our friends and our families. This is the man who had Stephen killed. This is a man who hated us, and he's standing in our church. It would have taken us a little while to even be comfortable around a man like that. But over the 17 years, a change is unfolding, and God is preparing this man for the most amazing work. And his entire perspective changed. And if you notice, we read a moment in verse 7, what I see amazing is this. His position, his privilege, and work are no longer important to him. They're not important. What is he saying? Whatever things were gained to me, I've counted that as lost for the sake of Christ. He's walking away from it. It's no longer important. You guys have known people who are very successful, very committed. The money, the privilege, the fame, all that is all wrapped up in who they are, and they, got, they, they can't walk away from it. He goes, I walk away. I don't want this anymore. I don't need this anymore. This is who I was. It's not who I am anymore. I, can, I count all of this loss for the sake. In fact, we can go any farther. In verse 8, he called it rubbish. A, original translation in the Greek would be dung. All that's worthless. My position, my Hebrew of Hebrews, my Pharisee, all of that's nothing. See, the entire purpose of life is not us outdoing everyone else. Here's the entire purpose of what he found was important and where he's going and where I'm challenging us today. His entire purpose is, what does he say in 8? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He just wanted to know Jesus. I think for some of us, what's the big deal? It is a big deal. He's the one who gave you life. He's the one who's forgiven your sins. He's the creator of the universe. He sits on the right-hand throne of the Father. He's the one who's coming again. I think I said this a few weeks ago when my wife was turning 60. I threw her the surprise party, so I won't go into how all that worked. I think I did that before. 
But when she walked in that surprise party after all the mistakes I made, because I'm just a dumb guy when it comes to understanding all this stuff, but I'd gotten it right, and I'd gotten it well done. And as everybody, her dad and mom were there, and her brother's there, and all of her friends from the years were there, there were about 100 people in the room, and they were surprised. She turned to me, and her words to me were, you know me. What she meant, because I had to ask. <laughs> I'm a guy, what do you expect? It meant I loved her, that I loved her enough that I knew who she was and what she liked and what she needed and what she wanted. I knew her. Well, I've thought about that to this. What are we called to do, the, the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, all the different things, like four of them in one, three in the other with a passion for him. So how are you going to know if that's real? Because what it drives it is you want to know him. Question, what is eternal life? Most of us are going to say eternal life. I get to live forever. But it's more than that. Everyone gets to live forever because everyone, good and bad, will be resurrected. Some to a resurrection of judgment, others to a resurrection of life. So it's more than just living forever. John 17, 3, when Jesus is preaching in John 17, or praying in John 17, in 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life. That you know the Father and that you know Jesus Christ. What I have come to learn after all these years is this. Coming to meet Christ when I did, at the age of 21, in Gloria, New Mexico, in 1974, August the 13th, I have learned, I just thought, got my fire insurance policy, it's okay, I stepped in the baptistry, I'm all right. Yes, but that's not life. That's just the start. That's just the first step. I have been privileged to be able to come to know him through life just like you have. The key to life is, as we come to know him, why is it important why is knowing him so important? Jeremiah says, if you're going to boast, boast that you understand and know God. That he is the one who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. And, I de and that God delights in those kind of things. We're all, according to Ephesians, trying to attain a unity of faith, which is knowing who he is. So how do we go about that? Well, let me say this. Knowing Jesus is by grace, and yet it takes effort. It is by grace, and yet it takes effort. What do you mean by grace? God's the one who gave us insight and understanding to know who he is. It's the Holy Spirit that opened our eyes to be able to see clearly the Lord Jesus. That's what happened to me on August the 13th of 1974. I grew up in church. My dad was a deacon. My parents sang in the choir. Uh, we, we were there every time the doors opened, and in those days, it was literally, we went to church, was what we did all the time. We were there on Wednesday nights. My, they'd go to choir practice, and I would, I better not say what I'd do at church, because as a kid, I'd climb through everything there was when I was a kid. But I went to church, and I know all the stuff you're supposed to learn, but it never clicked to me what it was about. And so in 1971, when I left to go to the city of Austin, to the University of Texas, 
Moved into Jester's dorm the first Sunday. I went and joined Hyde Park Baptist, one of the great churches in Austin at the time. I went and joined them, and I never went again. The reason I went and joined was I knew they'd send my letter home, and Mom and Dad would be sitting in a business meeting, and they would hear that the letter came through that Steve joined, and they'd be all excited. Steve's in church. But I didn't go anymore. Didn't see any need for it. I'd done that my whole life. I didn't need this anymore. And for the next couple of years, that's what I did. I'd be in a fraternity. I got Pledge of the Year. I played sports. I was won some intramural stuff at Texas. That's all I did was I didn't even go to school much. And so I, my grades were plummeting. Things were not going good. And so I came home thinking if I went to Lamar University my junior year, it'd be better. But you don't switch locations or switch schools to make life better because something was wrong here. And Ed Wright, Ed's got dementia right now. He's the same age I am, and we talk occasionally, but he doesn't really know who I am anymore. Ed one day sat down with me and said, do you know him? And I said, yes, I know him. Went to church my whole life. I know what the stories are. He said, no, do you know him? And what he did was he began to explain to me who Jesus was. Made me mad because I'd done church. I'd heard this all my life. But the next night, sitting there, it clicked. My life's not been the same. You have the same testimony. Different time period, different location, different circumstances. It's the Spirit of God that opened our eyes to be able to see that. So it is by grace. But it also takes effort on your part. That's why Paul told Timothy, pay close attention to yourself, to your teachings. Persevere in these things. So as you do, you ensure your salvation. He's later going to tell Timothy, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So here's my challenge to you today. You need to make sure you're still wanting to know him. You may have been at it like I have for a long time. 74 to 24 is 50 years that I've been walking with the Lord. And there's still so much more I need to know. That's why Paul said I've not attained it yet. We never get to the point. I, I, I don't get to the point that I fully know everything I need to know about Jan. I know much about her. We've shared many years together. But when you love somebody, you want to know them. And life changes. We adjust. Things happen. There are things I still have to learn. I'm still a dumb guy when it comes to relationships. And so I sometimes still don't get it right. You know, she's crying. Is she happy or sad? And I'm going, I don't know. I better get this right. I could be in trouble if I misread this situation. I still want to know her. Do you have that for our Lord? Any of you do hobbies? What do we do when we do a hobby? We go into a gung-ho. And it can be anything. Some of you are in woodworking. Some of you might be it's in the golf. And some of you might be into, for my wife, it's in the Hobby Lobby. She was told me the other day, she's in Lubbock this weekend visiting my grandson. They're at church at First Plainview right now because I was stalking her a minute ago to see if she made it there and stuff. She said, if we had the Hobby Lobby by our house that we have in, in Lubbock, she said, it's amazing. I wouldn't need Amazon. So I'm calling Hobby Lobby this week to see if they'll like up their store a little bit. And so we won't need Amazon anymore. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm joking about all of that. But, you know, a hobby consumes you. We get all the information we can. We buy what we need. It consumes everything that we do. Why? Because we like it. We enjoy doing it. You may not know this. I don't think I've really said much about it in 15 months. But when I was in college, 
I decided I wanted to become a magician. My grandfather worked for Blackstone, the famous magician, and my grandfather is probably the best spider hand person I've ever seen. And I got into that full-blown. And so I did Ted Mack Amateur Hour. Just a moment. How many in here know who Ted Mack is? Yeah, there's not many of us left anymore. It would be American Got Talent, but in the old days. I was on that. I did TV. I did a bunch of stuff. I, could, I can still kind of do it. Don't ask me to, but I can. if you've got a deck of cards, I can cut the four aces out of it. When I ask you to pick a card, I know what you pick every single time. You always pick exactly what I want. I learned to do all that. That's all I did. I was so consumed by that, it wasn't even funny. And I, made, so I put myself through college. And I was even thinking of maybe going into that in a kind of a professional kind of way because I had built up a good stage show and was doing all that kind of stuff. And then the Lord had other purposes in my life. You know how much magic I have done in the last 40 years? Zero. Well, I still love it, and I still occasionally, if somebody hand me a coin or a deck of cards, I might do something. But it's not my passion anymore. But it was when I was young. Sometimes our passions consume us. And they're good, but they're not great. My challenge to you today is the passion you need is to know Jesus. How do you do that? If you're going to do this reading the Bible, you need to be students of the Bible. That's what I love about this church. Many of you have a passion to learn, and you're trying to grasp and understand some of the truths. I'm still trying to do the same thing. I sit every morning for an hour or so, working through some stuff, thinking through some stuff. You have to have the biblical knowledge. But the other way you get to know him is, is just walk with him and stay faithful through life. You learn through experiences. I was doing a magic show in Canada for the People's Church of Toronto, Canada, a big stage show. My brother, who lived in Canada with mom and dad at the time, because dad was building a refinery there, helped me set up my equipment. He'd never had done that before. And I had a simple little trick. It wasn't nothing spectacular about it. But I would put a record, a black record. You, some of you young people know what a record is, an LP, a little plastic thing. Yeah, some of you weren't certain what I was talking about. You put it in the album cover. I had a hole in it. I put a red silk. I'd pull out the black album, and it'd be a uh, black record. It'd be red, and then it'd be blue, and it'd be yellow. It's nothing spectacular, but it fit in with where I was going next. So it came that time. I've got about a 1,000 people sitting out there. I had a spectacular opening trick, and now this is moving me to the next stage. I put the black record in. I put the silk in. I go to pull out the blue or the red or the green record, and there's no blue, red, or green. My brother didn't put the switches in. Listen, magicians don't just make it happen. i got to have all that stuff in there. And I'm... There's nothing there. So what if you do? If you're a magician, you're in Toronto, Canada, they've given you a great spill that this guy from Texas is here to entertain us. There are a thousand people out there and your second trick is a total bomb and can't be done. I did what you do because I've learned over there. I took the record with the silk in it and I threw it up in there and said, so much for that. And I went straight to my second one and I got a standing ovation. I am serious. You'd have to be there. My brother was so stunned. Later he came up and said, where did it go? I said, where did what go? Where did the record go? I said, I don't know. There was a curtain across. There were beams across. It hit a beam and stuck. <laughs> now, I tell a dumb story like that because I learned to adjust when things didn't work right. But I did that because I'd done that for a while. 
I knew how to react at the moment to make it happen. See, that's what knowing Jesus is about. The more understanding biblically, the more I walk with him, the more insight and understanding I, I have. And then when things happen in life and I need to react in a good way, I have built up a good basis of knowledge because of my passion to know him. And I do know what he wants. I do know how to react. I do know how to, to respond. That's what we've been called to do. And you learn these amazing ways to be like Paul. He didn't get this overnight. What did I say a minute ago? It took him 17 years from his conversion to Christ to even begin to be ready to stand in front hostile people and difficult situation and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. It took 17 years for him to grow, 17 years for him to come strong, 17 years to be able to stand. And by the time he writes this, he is strong by the grace of God. But what drives me crazy about this passage is at the age of 60, after all these years, he says, he says this, I want to know him. I still want to know him. For those who are my age and older, that passion should stay with you to your dying breath, to want to know him. The one we're going to spend eternity with. It's a demonstration of how much we love him. That leads me to this. So what do we need to know? I think I'm, I could do two or three or four things, but I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to do two. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So the first truth you want to grasp and understand is the resurrection, the power of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul gives a great description about the resurrection, he said Jesus was buried and he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. You and I have come to the point we believe in the resurrection. It's part of being a Christian. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him to the dead. That's Romans 10. That's part of your salvation, that you now have eternal life. Paul says this in Colossians 2, we were raised up through faith, who raised Jesus from the dead. We're alive today because he was raised. So there is that. We need to know and understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the impact and influence it has on us. Also, what you need to know is this. We need to know the power that's involved, the power that's going to raise you up on the last day. Martha gave her hope when Lazarus died. She says to Jesus, I know he'll be raised on the last day. We know from 1 Corinthians 15 in the great description of the resurrection, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised. We will all be changed. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the one that's going to raise us up at the end times. And so that's important. And to fully know and understand that. Why? Because that's what gives us hope. When you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and read verses 13 through 18, most use that to try to figure out the second coming and the rapture and everything else. That's not why he wrote it. He does more about that in the second letter. All he's wanting to know, what happened to our loved ones who have died? Who have gone on? What do we expect from that? And he says this, there's going to come a day. And the dead in Christ shall be raised. But those who were forced, they're going to come. We're going to be with them. We're all going to go up and meet each other in there. He's speaking about the resurrection and all of us together with him. How does it close in verse 18? Most of us quit at 17. What does it say in 18? Comfort one another with these words. The more you understand the Lord Jesus Christ, the more comfort it will give you when you face the loss of a loved one. And the more hope it's going to give you as you face your own 
potential mortality and the coming to the end of your own life, knowing that this is not the end, but we're going to go on to something better. So that's knowing the power of the resurrection. But there's something else, because it's not only a future power, it is a present power in your life today. You and knowing him need to know that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that's going to raise you from the dead, is a power that's already at work in your life today. So what does it mean? Well, if I go back to, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy with the great love which he loved us, he has made us alive, he has raised us up, and he has seated us in heavenly places. Your salvation is a stunning example of the power of the resurrection, that he took someone who was dead in their trespasses and sin, who were led by all the evilness of the world and your own lust, and he has made you alive in Christ. That's real. It's real in my life. It's real in your life. And you and I, you know, sometimes we get real frustrated because we want to do better, and we just sometimes we slip back a little. We, we trip up. We, we, we allow our, our, our weaknesses to really hit us hard sometimes. But you know one thing I've come to realize? The very fact I'm concerned that I don't want that anymore is a sign of him at live in my life, that I'm not happy with what that just happened. I don't want that. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The power of the resurrection is what keeps pressing me forward to be as he is. It's what gets me up every morning and said, this is a day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the power that's at work in all of our lives right now. So Paul says, I want to know him. And I want to know that power that raised him from the dead, that will raise me from the dead, and that has given me life today. And then lastly, the second truth I want you to realize today is this, to know the fellowship of the suffering. Now, the word fellowship there is the word koinonia. You've heard that sometimes in your attending a church. We want koinonia in the church. We want fellowship. But he's talking about something a little bit more. Call him at a fellowship of suffering. That's a little hard for you and I to grasp and understand living in America. Not certain how much longer the days we've been used to will still be here with the way things are happening. I'm trying to go to Cuba in, in April. I was talking to the president the other day, and so we've set a time for me to come in April for about 10 or 11 days. I'm still trying to work all the details out to get in there. But I know what the fellowship of the suffering is when I walk with them. It's illegal to be outward with your faith in Cuba. Church is booming. It's going strong. You have to be careful. I've preached in many of their churches. You know, I always do four or five every time I go. So I've been, this will be my 10th trip. So I've been in about 35 of their churches. Their big ones, their little ones, their house churches and everything else. I always have to be careful what I say. I can preach the word of God, but I can't go anywhere else. If I overstep, if I make a comment that's slightly like saying one time that uh, General Boykin, a friend of mine, even using his name could get people in trouble. So I have to be careful when I even reference anything. Because if not, as my friend said, I said, why can't I use general? He's a devout follower of Christ. Just use an example not of what he accomplished military or politically, but what he's done in his own life. That's what I was talking about. He said, Steve, great American, great American warrior, great American general, great American politician. You're his friend. You're CIA. I go to jail. That's how they live. I took Jan one time, and I always would come back and say, if I was went to Cuba last week, because I thought we had an amazing song service a minute ago, you guys sing so well, it's unbelievable. But if I had just come back from Cuba and was sitting right there, it would have sounded dead to me. Because they sing at a level I've never seen in my entire life. 
My wife thought when I'd tell that at Village Parkway when I get back that I was speaking pastorally. You know, we stretch it a little with our stories, supposedly. I've never known a preacher to do that, but supposedly we do that. And so she took out just ministerially speaking. Then she went. And she was teaching a seminary class, which for her was so out of her comfort zone, it wasn't even funny, but she was doing it on music. And finally in the middle of class, she stopped and said, i got to know something. Steve has always said every time he comes back from here that you guys have a passion for Christ and you sing at a level he's never heard anybody ever sing. Why? Why? And Moses, who is an Old Testament professor, it's Cuba, good name for an Old Testament professor, said we sing because it's the only way we can express ourselves and not go to jail. There is what's called the fellowship of the suffering. Sergeant Monk and I, along with the bakers from Oregon, the Kleins, Baronel Stutzman from Washington, the florist, the cake baker in Colorado, uh, Kevin Cochran, the fire chief, all of them had lost their jobs, along with a lot of chaplains. We had what we called the fellowship of the suffering. We'd get on and talk and encourage each other. Several of them had lost their livelihood. They lost their money. They lost everything because of that. So I do have a little bit of idea what this is. Paul says, when you know me, you're also going to know the fellowship of the suffering. And Jesus said this, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me if you don't take up your cross and follow me. And Paul told the church of Colossae, I do my share on behalf of his body. I, I, the suffering I go through, I rejoice in my suffering. I get to add a little bit more to all that Christ has accomplished for him. And I wrap down with this. Romans 8, 8, 17 is very clear. If we're children, we're heirs. If we're heirs, we're fellow heirs with Christ. But we will suffer with him so that we will be glorified with him. God has always said there'll be tough times in all of our lives. Paul never quits. So my challenge to you today is, you know him. May that passion drive you. May it be who you are. And may, when life gets tough, that you do not quit. You do not quit. My junior year at Lamar University, I just come to Christ, but my life is still going downhill. There wasn't this radical transformation overnight. Steve had a lot of stuff he had to work through. And I bombed that fall semester. And in the middle of November, just for Thanksgiving, I called my parents and said, I quit. My mom said, quit what? I said, quit in college. Can't do it, mom. My mom's a college professor. She's doing everything she can to talk. Dad's on the phone now. They're doing everything they can. I said, you don't understand I won the national math test, but I'm failing linear algebra and calculus because I wasn't doing anything. I got a B in swimming because I didn't go to class. I had like a 1.1. I said I quit. Four days later, it took that long to get the letters written that night and in the mail to me. Both mom and dad wrote me and challenged me not to quit. I still have the letters. I will treasure them till my last day. But they gave me their insight and wisdom and saying, We're not, you're, not, you're not to quit, son. Please don't quit you, if you do. Well, when I did get home that time, 
My dad called me upstairs. We're in Sarnia, Ontario. It's the most gorgeous of winter nights. It's about five below, snowing outside. They lived on the St. Clair River in a, a huge house. It's just gorgeous. And they got a fireplace that covered this huge wall. And I'm in hog heaven because school's over. I'd pretty much blown it and failed. And I have not a worry in my world. And Dad said, son, can we talk? Come upstairs. That's not good. Some of you have had those talks. I go upstairs. Mom's waiting. My dad took my grades. I don't know why he had them so fast, but he handed them to me. I don't know why Lamar sent my grades to him. They never had done that before. I guess I was such a bad student. He said, son, here are your grades. I couldn't look at them, and I could not look up. I just kept my head down. And then my dad said this, son, I'm going to give you one more chance. And then if you can't do it, um, I give up. I'll give you one more chance. And he walked out. My mom, who is a woman of many words, didn't say anything. I'm waiting for her to scream and holler at me or do something. Finally, she said, son, you've hurt your dad like you've never hurt him before. And she walked out. I had to sit there that night and make a decision. Am I going to quit? I didn't. Was it easy to crawl out of the hole? No. But I'd do it all over again. By the power of God, and a young kid just coming to know Jesus, he began to make a change. I would have never met Jan if I'd have quit that day. It's one of the best things ever God ever did for me was bring that little girl in my life. Took a crusty old kid who was not real smart, and we'd been a quiet partner. Stephanie, Mark, and Jonathan wouldn't be around because we would have never met. Three kids have done well in life. I've got to watch it. And my eight grandkids, Branson, Emmy, Caleb, Riley, Artem, Hannah, go to San Antonio, Katie Bell, Tyler. Couldn't ask for eight better grandkids. That would have never happened. Pastor in the three churches that I got to pastor and the privileges and the opportunities that took me around the world would have never happened. So I close this way. Don't quit. Make it your desire every day to know him. Walk with him every day and come to understand the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of the suffering. It's worth every step. So when we get to the end, God looks, we were able to look up to, not excuse me, we were able to look up to everyone around and says, fought a good fight. I kept the faith. I have finished the course. Now it's time to go into glory. And that, as I said last week, when that day comes, we'll, I'll say, hey, there's people from Greenville. And as I said last week, they go, I can't believe the preacher made it. Which is as funny this week as it was last week. But we're going to be there, guys. And everything about it is going to be worthwhile. We don't do this just to fulfill a religious duty during the week. We do this because we've come to love and to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you give us to study your word. Now, as we bring our service to conclusion today, speak to the hearts of all who are here what the reaction and response needs to be to all that we've talked about today. May you be glorified by all we do this week as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.